My name is Fiona Martin, and I started the Equal Interviews as a way to speak to people who are helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Felicia Campos, a historian who also has a master's in peace and conflict studies under the UNESCO chair at Innsbruck University, Austria. Felicia has been around the world studying a host of subjects, but in this interview, we find her in her home city of Florianopolis, Brazil. Florianopolis is a unique city located on an island in the south of Brazil. It has been designated a sustainable city, so I was interested in hearing from Felicia what makes Floripa sustainable, why its population cares so much, and how the residents, businesses, and municipality all work together to reach their sustainable goals. It's fascinating to learn about other places and the efforts they make, and if there's one takeaway for me, it's that as citizens we need to be involved in the planning process for our towns and cities. No one wants to live next to a polluting coal plant or landfill, swim in plastic-filled water, or inhale exhaust fumes from millions of cars. But it takes the people standing up for our rights for clean air, water, and soil to make a difference. The tech entrepreneurs putting down roots in Floripa know the citizens want to maintain the natural splendor of the city, and they make adjustments accordingly. Now, here's my conversation with Felicia. Welcome, Felicia. Felicia Campos from Florianopolis. How are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me, Fiona. I'm doing fine. Yeah, in a very different year that we're living right yes, now. <laughs> right in the middle of, the, of coronavirus. Felicia is uh, in Brazil. And so I'm excited to talk to her about sustainability in Brazil, but most um, more directly about Florianopolis, the city down there. So do you mind introducing yourself and your background? And then tell us about Florianopolis as a city where it is in Brazil and this sort of unique features. So I am, uh, I, gra- I graduated in history here in Brazil and I obtained my master's at the UNESCO chair for peace studies at Innsbruck University in Austria. Um, so I am kind of an interdisciplinary researcher in that sense. Um, so I am not a specialist in sustainable or sustainability studies, but um, that is always permeating whatever I do uh, as a researcher as well. And also as a citizen, broadly speaking, I'm very interested in that. So I was born and raised in Florianópolis. That's the capital of the, one of the southern states in Brazil, uh, Santa Catarina state. And we have very unique features here because it's the capital but it's also an island, so it has a very kind of contained space for growth uh, as big cities in Brazil. And it's considered a very small capital because, you know, there's only a limited amount of people that can fit in an island. <laughs> so we have currently half a million citizens, which um, for European standards is a very, very big city. But for Brazilian standards, it's a very tiny one, <laughs> a very tiny capital, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... When it's summertime here, many people come for, um, for the beaches because we have 42 beaches around in the island. And it's, so our population doubles in summer. And we, have, we experience lots of problems of infrastructure and also regarding, you know, the safety of the water. And, yeah, a lot of problems that come um, when a lot of people are together and there is no proper... Um, treatment of everything of all the waste and everything produced and traffic and everything so kind of every year we experience heavily the problems of uh, living together in a very 
a concentrated amount of people in one space, right? Also, uh, we have some cultural uh, problems at the time because um, somehow, also because we are in, a, in an island, people have a very strong um, sense of connection with nature around here, uh, the people that live here, that historically have their families here, um, especially people that are into, you know, athletes and people that are, do outdoor activities. So, you know, it's, it's such a precious Thing to be able to be close to nature and I think people get really mad when some tourists come and you know just throw garbage out the window and yeah we have a lot of Argentinians coming and there's always a lot of problem regarding that with the locals because they say the Argentinian people don't respect our uh, ways of doing things but probably it's because they don't know um, and so we have like historically those conflicts uh cultural conflicts and i tried to observe them while i was growing up and trying to understand okay why do we uh why do locals you know get into fights or discussions with uh, some tourists and usually it's because there is something regarding they are throwing garbage out the window or they're leaving garbage at the beach or you know just doing things that for people around here is kind of understood that that's unacceptable and from that, like when I was young, I, I was observing that and like traveling around the world as I have had the privilege to do, I understood that we had a, we had, do have a culture around here in the island of um, taking care of that environment. And But also, what is environment <laughs> to those people? It's a very, I think, a very strict understanding of environment, which is pretty much direct nature, right? So kind of natural space so talking about forest and the river and the waterfalls and the sea um and the animals in there but not everyone is actually understanding the bigger picture like the systemic thing that uh, whatever we do is also uh directly interfering in the environment so not everyone is uh understanding the, our responsibility and accountability for our waste, um, for our where are we building our houses, um, you know, building more high buildings and, uh, you know, those things. So one in one hand, we have that um, cultural kind of uh, uh, understood, like understanding that everybody kind of knows and what, that's where we're all starting from because we do want green spaces and parks and, you know, we do want clean air <laughs> and people do value that. And on the other hand, people do not understand how we as individuals and as a community uh, are also affecting all of that. It's not only when people come from the outside, like we are also helping to destroy everything that we care for and not everyone is knowing that. So at the same time, we have, many people caring for that already and we have many community um like community-based organizations that are working with it um not only with the public sector but independently as well and doing education in the schools and in the communities and in the elders and creating um urban gardens and creating urban agriculture and compost uh, composting movements and also the municipalities working with that too now and so um in the past year especially i guess 
yeah, in the past decade, but most, I think most strongly, I was here. I came back from Germany. I was studying there. Uh, I came back in 2015. So I could see this actually growing exponentially. Um, the move, the kind of community movements towards uh, sustainability in a more systemic and like a systemic way of like composting. And so the, the, no, I don't know how to say that in English, but it's part of the the municipal, the municipality um, power. The people that create the laws that we directly elect here in Brazil, because we have a direct, uh, we do we have a, a representative democracy, but we do elect these kind of representatives of our communities, mm-hmm. and they are the ones proposing the laws to the mayor. Um, and they also can pass all the laws without the mayor liking it too, which so it's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so these people are also understanding that the communities are asking for more uh, sustainable projects and and some changes really in the structures of our city. So we have now, oh, we can talk about that later, mm-hmm. um, but we have some very interesting initiatives in, in the city regarding the control of the waste and we have a program called zero waste they want to achieve zero waste in 2030 or in 30 years i'm not really sure about that i have that that somewhere 2030 (laughs) 2030 yeah so we have 10 years to do that exactly Mm -hmm. and that has been somehow a a, like a communal effort and, and um so that can happen and of course why would a city uh, want that? Uh, we have somehow this is uh, something that will call and draw attention, right? We are, as I said before, we are a very tiny island. and Not tiny, but it's, you know, it's a contained space. And we don't have other sorts of industry here, like mining industry or, you know, the, we don't have plants in the city. So the industry here is pretty much uh, the tourist industry, tourism uh, industry and the technology industry. So they call it the clean uh, industry, Mm -hmm. but it's not clean when you draw, I don't know, thousands of people to come and work here without actually creating the structure to do so in a sustainable way, at least trying to reduce the the problems of just bringing so much, like we're drawing a lot of people to come to the island because of the technology industry. In Brazil, we are called, uh, the city is called the Silicon Valley of Brazil already. <laughs> we have very yeah. big tech companies here. So also these companies, um, they are reaching international markets. They are, you know, um, being invested by very big companies, uh, international companies as well. And, other big companies from Sao Paulo and other um, monetary funds. So they do kind of come with this um, 21st century thinking of sustainable cities. We need, we like our generation wants to not only work, but want to be healthy and we need to, to care for our mental health and for our environment. So, also, our generation, I guess, the people that are coming to work here are usually very young people. They are demanding for those things. We want to live in a city where we can have fun and be in contact, close contact with nature, and we want to go to work by bike and have, you know, kind of this, this whole um, this whole picture that we want to um, kind of tick the boxes. Like, okay, I'm in a nice place. I 
I can go to the beach and it's we know how I mean how fantastic it is to be close to the, to the nature. So somehow uh, Flodenopolis is, is um, this place where people can do all that. So you can have a work that pays you well because the technology fields usually brings people um, with, you know, speak two, three languages. People are highly educated, graduated or undergrads at least have two massive universities here as well. So we have a lot of intelligence, like the intelligence business is all here. And these people um, do demand um, this other path as well. So it, I think it's kind of a mentality that's um, helping to, um, yeah, it's just giving force to this zero waste uh, idea and, and really kind of the, so many sectors are, um, articulating now um, to make this happen right now here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and the, the interests are very different. So we, <laughs> we have a, an interest of the community, the community, actually, yeah, the community centers and people that, you know, our neighbors, they're talking to each other and saying, okay, we don't want, a, I don't know, 10-store 10, 10 building in front of our houses because we'll lose the sign and we don't want that. We are. We only have houses here, and they want to build that. So they kind of mobilize for individual um, individual agendas, let's say, or uh, agendas of a very small group with very like uh, points that they want to defend or they want to counterpoint. And also at the same time, we have other people saying, "No, we want more uh, safe safe routes for cycleways, and we want to be." Um, we want our kids to grow with the park and we want to preserve that area that was already, we are, we are replanting things. Um, so, so many things are happening at the same time. And then you have all this very strong and very influential group of people, which are the entrepreneurs here in Brazil mm -hmm. and in the city, which are the guys with the money, with the money to do that. And um, so they are very well articulated with the, uh, public sector not much with the community sector usually they are clashing mm -hmm. <laughs> because they have the guys wanted to build the great buildings and creating other spaces and other structures and people that you know they they live here for 40 years and they have their house in the same place for 30 years they don't want things to change that much right <laughs> so we usually have a clash between those sectors but in a way they're all kind of using this discourse of sustainability. So even this great new buildings they want to build, they have this idea of being sustainable and using well uh, sunlight and ventilation and, and uh, collecting water, water from the rain, you know, so they have this kind of narrative also to it. So, and it, it's very interesting to see how this is well accepted uh, in the, in the, like the the general opinion of the public and in the whole city, but uh, how also in in praxis, like when how this is actually happening, there are a lot of clashes and the interests are quite different. Mm. But so, but we have this quite unique scenario of somehow all this um, this power dynamics and interest dynamics kind of converging towards we want sustainable city we want a green city we want that to kind of still be our 
brand or our, how the world sees us, we want to live that, right? Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Being Florianopolis is a uh, is an island, and I see uh, other island um, communities. Like I used to live in Las Palmas de Gran Canaria in the Canary Islands, and the I feel like uh, people who are on a on a ocean or you know a waterlocked land kind of understand limited resources right because they're forced into it and so those communities are tend to be forward thinking when it comes to sustainability because they have to use what they're given and they don't have a huge land mass that they can go and destroy <laughs> but um so florianopolis is seen as like this sustainability city in brazil and you know will expand it out to the world um and you've identified three main actors the public sector the municipalities uh the private sector through entrepreneurs and then there's this grassroots community um, upswell um, let's talk about you mentioned or if you can give us an example of how even though everyone's kind of forward-thinking sustainability you said there's a little bit of rub between the grassroots and then these um, these business people the entrepreneurs how and I imagine the public sector at some point kind of has to be the regulator on that to approve whatever it is whether it's development or you know certain industries coming into your city can you talk to us a little bit about that Yes, exactly. That's always something. And it's very interesting to observe because they somehow have to negotiate and talk to one another and, you know, be, you know, face to face and speak. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, my mother is um, involved in the community sector for mm -hmm. a long time. And she's so I kind of have this inside view on it. And um, so they have a lot of councils and, and they speak directly to the uh, municipality. And they speak to one another and they have this very imbricated, complex political um, yeah, articulations, right, amongst the community sectors. And as I said, there's so many individual or kind of small groups, interests that you have to um, balance also. And then you have this big influential um, interest from the entrepreneurs that kind of clash with many times with the community. Mm -hmm. So what happens mostly is that we have environmental laws, right? So you cannot build, I mean, you can only start building um, 30 meters from every side of the river. And what we have, we see that many of those laws were not followed throughout history, in, you know, in construction. I'm, I'm, you know, just an example that you can see in the city. So we have many things and um, usually big businesses or something like that, but also houses built just next to the river, right? And this comes from, of course, also a time where uh, such environmental laws didn't even exist. So we have, we have those houses there and probably they're polluting the river directly. Now, of course, we... Every single house that is built, you need to um, connect your sewage to the municipality sewage and, you know, have all this underneath infrastructure. But we still have many old buildings here and many old buildings that now house businesses. So we call the director plan. I don't know how it will be translated. I don't know that in Portuguese, plan of the city. And... This is like a main document that says what can be done and what cannot be done in every single kind of every single neighborhood and every single street. Oh, okay. So that um, two um, 
two blocks from the main avenue of this neighborhood, you can have businesses and two blo uh, like from three blocks onwards can only have residencies. So the, the director plan is a, it's a law, right? It's a municipal law for everybody has to follow that. And what happens is that many times for some reasons that quite obscure, this is not followed. Mm -hmm. Right. And not only not only the director plan, but um, environmental laws itself, like, OK, they are building yeah, less than 30 meters from the river, a new residential massive complex. And I mean, another thing from Florinopolis, which is um, kind of adds up to the complex complexity of that. We have a lot of um, money per capita here comparing to the rest of Brazil. We have very. We have a very privileged population here, right? The south of Brazil is, um, if we gather data about it, uh, it's a, the part of the country with um, the greatest amount of money. And Brazil is a very unequal country. So the distribution of, of capital is also very different. And we are a very tiny uh, state here. Santa Catarina is very small, one of the smallest states. And our capital is one of the richest ones. Um, so we have people with a lot of money here and somehow that seems to intervene uh, with laws. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so these people are influential. They, they have names. They have, we have that, you know, kind of a, as a small city, you know, the families, you know, the names and those guys have a lot of power. So sometimes that happens. It's not all the time. We have also the justice and, yeah, the public sector um, interfering in that, uh, with that. But sometimes the community uh, checks out uh, what's going on and they see, okay, that law was simply ignored. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you even have the okay from a, a public sector organization that gave the okay to, to, okay, proceed, right? Proceed with that building, with that construction. And, so the community is doing somehow this also this not, I mean, some organizations of the community, they're really looking into what's going on and um, kind of fiscalizing and checking out if the laws are being um, followed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have to uh, make, you know, denounce, is that the word denounce? I'm not sure, but they have to go to the justice and say, okay, this is, um, this law was not, I don't know, fully um, followed and now they're building. We, we ask you to see that, what's going on. So they kind of start investigations and stuff. And this is mediated, of course, is mediated by the, the public sector in that sense, right? They go straight to the public ministry to do that. Um, and, of course, that creates even more discomfort and even more uh, clashes with the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So, like most of the kind of the negotiating efforts of the entrepreneurs where they want to build in a specific neighborhood is actually to create animosity with the community. So the community will not be another force against um, their, you know, their effort of building something or creating something in there. So it's very interesting to see also these articulations of the entrepreneurs really understanding <laughs> and taking the community seriously um, because they've been so open and so well articulated, not in every single neighborhood, okay, but many neighborhoods of the city, the, the 
community is very well articulated. And somehow this sector with a lot of influence and money also are recognizing that they need to talk with those guys and they kind of need to um, make an agreement and say, okay, well, you can build here, but you need to make, to create a, a like, there are laws for that, okay, but mm -hmm. they're not always followed. So if they want to make a very big, um, I don't know, a residential, um, I don't know, big towers of, you know, um, buildings, they need to at least, I don't know, a percentage of that, the whole terrain they're using to build, they need to donate to the community and do something that community can use, like a park or um, cycleways or, you know, just a, a green reserve or something like that. Um, so they are, now they have to really like talk face to face and kind of mobilize and negotiate those things. And sometimes they really ask like the ones that are following the law itself, because the law already exists for that. And they ask, okay, what do you want us to do? Like, we have to do this for you. What do you want us to do? And then usually very nice things come from that. Like mm -hmm. when they do sit together and, and speak. So they created um, parks around the rivers that will be uh, preserved, like help to preserve the, um, the rivers. Like um, there is a very famous one now that was so famous that other, uh, other areas of the city and other cities also copied it. Mm -hmm. which is kind of a, they call it the linear park, which is a park along the river. And that also enhances the value of the building because mm -hmm. all of a sudden you have uh, amazing park next, like as part of the, the, almost as a part of the complex, right? So you have this very beautiful area with, you know, animals and uh, yeah, just preserved, um, preserving that space now in a very structured way, right? Because you have places, you know, have volleyball courts and you have a skate park and you have, and they, they pay for that because that's the law. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they could have done something else without talking to the community, but they don't. They actually go there and talk, okay, what do you want us to do? We pay for the project, we pay for the architect, they do something very nice. And the community can, of course, also use it. So it's so interesting to see how... Um, we're not being able to stop the the growth right of such buildings and uh, of such spaces and, and businesses uh, but at least um, the some some things are being talked through and and negotiated and agreed mm -hmm. so it's kind of trying uh, I think the community tries to kind of stop and like really try and slow down this process because we know uh that can only be you know so much at, at the island and yeah but at the same time cannot actually stop for real because things transform and the thing is there's so much money coming into the island now because of technology i mean now that we are in this crisis actually the technology sector is the one that has not suffered as much right so um Everybody that I know, they already worked with that, continue working offline. Like they didn't lose their jobs. Some are hiring. So it's been quite interesting for our city because um, the whole uh, crisis regarding the, um, the pandemic did not affect. Of course, I'm, I'm generalizing here, right? Mm -hmm. 
the situation in Brazil is very bad, very bad, economically speaking, for the population. It's disastrous, actually, um, for most of our population. I'm talking about the very rich sectors that are already rich, mm -hmm. and the technology sector that was already rich is even richer now because, <laughs> you know, everything went online, and those guys are in the middle of it, so... Yeah. yeah, so these particularities are happening in, in Florianopolis right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you've highlighted a few things. So you're talking about like what we would call public zoning, which determines what can be built where. Um, and uh, But similar to what you're experiencing in Florianopolis, where maybe these uh, laws are in the books or these zoning ordinances are there, they're not always being followed, unfortunately, um, money talks. And... Uh, one takeaway I would say is the work of people like your mother and other citizens to hold the businesses accountable and to hold the public sector accountable and say, Hey, you know, that you know, we elect you to create laws that benefit us. And then you're not enforcing them. Um, it's a little bit of shame that as community, we have to do that, but it's, it's completely necessary. The, the same thing is happening where I live, where uh, a power, three power plants in our state have, um, lapsed water pollution permits that have lapsed for 10 years like I, I don't even know how you can have a permit that's out of date for 10 years and it's simply because the people the community don't know and are unable to hold these public officials accountable and it takes um, attorneys stepping in and suing them and and that sort of stuff. So it sounds like a strong community base and the citizens of Florianopolis who are very uh, sustainable minded and have been for a few generations now need to hold them accountable. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, concrete sustainable initiatives. And I want to start with the, um, the cycling infrastructure transportation things that you guys are, are doing to try and improve the traffic and reduce those carbon emissions that all the cars bring into your island yeah that's that's a big thing mobility but i just like to point out that we have a strong community and that's active and you know talking to one another it's all voluntary so mm -hmm. first of all you can only have such i think in my opinion right you can only have um this configuration of communal or community of awareness somehow uh with people that can do that voluntarily and this comes with people that have money, mm -hmm. right? That people that at least have, um, you know, the basic and a little bit more. That people that are very, very well scholared. Not everybody, okay? We have very strong community leaders that are not um, that come from the favelas. That are in the community, like the poorest communities. They are doing fantastic works. They are doing great works, really. Um, so it's not all real, uh, all true for, for everyone. But I mean, we have this um, very strong community um, mentality and articulation because we are in a, in a very privileged city with a very privileged population. Not everyone. We have favelas. We have a lot of inequality in Florianópolis as well. But comparing to the rest of Brazil, we are very privileged. So um, I think that also somehow built like it's, it's an important thing in the scenario that we're talking about right now yes definitely i wanted, mm -hmm. I wanted to point that out and we find <laughs> we, we find the same like a you know parallels in the u.s as you have like california which is like the fifth largest economy in the entire world they are sustainably minded because as you mentioned they have the privilege to 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 just not be 
focused on survival, right? I think that's a big thing. Exactly. If you're focused on you need a roof over your house, you need to eat today, then you know you do what you need to do. But it takes uh, a little bit of comfort to maybe look around and see what else is going on. So I agree. Yeah, with that. Mm-hmm. to have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. You need to have options and for that you do of course you need to get off the basics of survival so Mm -hmm. that's something right that's that's big um yeah well talking about mobility that's probably the achilles tendon of (laughs) of florinopolis that's that's the one of our greatest challenges because in other cities that grew a lot in other capitals in brazil they were okay i'm a historian so i have to do a little bit of like we have to go a little bit uh, back in time to to uh, explain what's going on in, in Brazil, but I think it's a quite it's a similar uh, scenario to the U.S. because we were culturally colonized by the United States. Uh, that's mm-hmm. something people don't really say much. But from the 50s onwards, I mean, we had a president that needed to leave his mark, and he decided to go with the industry in the U.S. In the industries in the U.S. that promised to put a lot of money and to bring the car factories to Brazil, that would bring a lot of money to Brazil, kind of. Um, and for that, they agreed that the main transportation in the whole country, which is a massive country, is way bigger than the whole co- European continent, uh, Brazil. They decided that will be all um, car, like car streets, Car centric, car centric design. Yeah, exactly. It's a car centric design. So automobilism at its finest. And um, so we had a lot of railways already built from if we were part of the empire of Portugal. So kind of that European ways of, um, you know, transporting things, they started building it here. So we had a lot of railway stations and a lot of mining, all the gold, everything that needed to go to the coast to be transported out of Brazil, of course. Um, it was transported by trains before, which is uh, intelligent, cheaper kind of way to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the 50s onwards, those railways were either destructed or um, made idle. And um, so they started building alto uh, carways all around highways right highways autovias <laughs> mm-hmm. highways <laughs> yeah exactly um uh carways uh, highways highway. highway oh my god <laughs> i was i was conf- uh it's just uh, the german it's it's autobahn okay. so <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah the, the so they they're building it throughout the country and from that moment onwards we have this car centric design all over um the country, even in places where it doesn't make any sense. If you go up north in Amazon, uh, Amazonia state, they pretty much have a lot of rivers. So they could do a very efficient river transportation and you, you have to go. They, they built a whole, seriously, oh my God, that was crazy. They built a whole um, way like for cars and trucks in the middle of the Amazon. And that, is, that cost billions of dollars. That was during the military dictatorship. Mm. And you have a very swamp terrain over there. So, of course, it didn't last. And, of course, it, you, you know, it requires a lot of money and um, maintenance to keep that kind of usable. And they just did it because they wanted to leave a mark. and say, we open, like, 
this thing um, in the middle of the Amazon and just crossing from one place to another instead of using the rivers, you know, which is already there. <laughs> you can just use that. But anyway, so this kind of this, um, we can say that a colonial uh, imposition of uh, external ideas that work somewhere else that are not studied and, you know, intelligently made here. So we have pretty much the whole Brazil, a massive place without any trains. Mm. and without any metros and subways also in the city. So in big cities like Sao Paulo and Rio, they had to change that because it's just so massive, like 20 million people living in one city. So these cities usually nowadays, they have trams and they have uh, uh, metros to a certain extent of the city. It's not fully covered, unfortunately yet. But in Florianopolis, we don't. We are an island and we have this, so it's a very kind of, our is like this mm -hmm. um it's pretty uh, horizontal uh, long. vertically yeah mm -hmm. long mm -hmm. and in the middle of it we have uh, you have kind of a chain of mountains which is not very big because we don't have massive mountains in brazil but it's we would say hills but they're quite big you know like mm -hmm. i don't know what are their heights but they they go from north to south so they divide the island in the, in the half and you cannot really transpose that, like crossing from the top, because it's like, mm -hmm. it's very, uh, yeah, it's high. And so we, everywhere you go, you have to go around to get to another point. And that is something really bad for mobility. We have one tunnel that was a very complicated construction and very, yeah, questioned, but unquestionable still nowadays. But they, at least just one way to cross. Uh, this chain of mountains that crosses uh, right the north, from north to south of the island. So we have this very uh, tricky problems of mobility. Also, you cannot dig and create a subway or metro because we are in a very swampy area, most of it. We have a lot of mangroves here. And, yeah, you cannot really just dig into wet soil, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we have a problem now. And we ha we probably have one of the worst mobility uh, problems in the whole country and it's funny because it, we have all this senses that say that Florianópolis is one of the best places to live in Brazil but the, the time you speak you spend in traffic um, doesn't really make sense to the size of the city <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. a lot of time so every time we have the politically like the the elections and all the the propaganda they usually try and deviate from the mobility problem because it's big, you know, mm -hmm. it's really big. And some people have some ideas, they speak about it, but we do have a problem. Um, and one way of trying to um, ameliorate that is cycleways because we don't have a very uh, big territory. We have even the Ironman here. Uh, the Ironman in Brazil is in our city and so these guys in one day, in 12 hours, they go back and forth <laughs> in their bicycles. Of course, talking about Ironman, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a whole new level of human being. I've been to, <laughs> I've been, of course, cheering <laughs> yeah. to, a couple of, to a couple of competitions. And it's, yeah, it's, it's such a crazy thing. And yeah, it's a real psychological, um, definitely a psychological event. It's not only a very sturdy human being a very strong body it's 
a very heavy mind. The iron mind is very important for the iron man. Yeah, <laughs> and the endurance, iron as an endurance athlete, I know. <laughs> oh my How God. many laps do you have to do around the island to get 112 miles? I think they do four. Oh, wow. It's not around the island, though. It's not around the island. Mm -hmm. They go um, north and south. Um, is it four? Two. I guess it's four by bike, right? By mm -hmm. bike. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's more. And to run, I think, is two. So mm -hmm. they start from the north of the island and they go all the way to the south. And we have very different terrains here. So they, they also have, we have the beach to do the, the swimming part, mm -hmm. which is very tough because they do it and they have heavy currents sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, for me, that's always the most scary part. And it's, it's how, they start the, the, how they start the Ironman. It's crazy. It's like 7 in the morning, everybody in the water, super cold, because it's cold here also. We're in the south of Brazil. <laughs> it's outside of the tropics. <laughs> I wanted to just... do this. You're trying to talk me out of coming down to Brazil to do oh this Ironman. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's really nice. Like, I wouldn't be the one that, you know, I'm the one cheering. I'm the cheerleader. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> It's very, like, it gets us very emotional because people are, you know, you start with them. Like, I usually bring the athletes because I have people in my family who are Ironman and Ironwoman, and I'm the support team, right? So mm -hmm. I'm the technical team, and I'm always helping out and giving them water and food and, you know, cheering them up with the family. And um, so we kind of you have to leave all the equipment at four or something in the morning. So they start the thing at seven and, you know, most of the people, they are not, the amateurs, right? The ones that are not professionals, they, they arrive at the finish line at like 10 uh, at night. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a whole day. I am exhausted just for cheering, mm -hmm. just from cheering. I'm exhausted. I really want to go home. And those guys are crazy walking, running all this time. And yeah, it's insane. So also because of the Ironman, um, people, need safer cycleways right around the island because the people that train for that here we have so many people that were um ran over by cars so many people died already from cycle um ways things because um of course when the when the ironman happens here we have the change of um the um the whole city's like changed and the whole traffic's also changed for the for the the proofs right so mm -hmm. the um, so of course everyone knows that Ironman's going like it's happening in the city because everything changes also. So there's a lot of people, right, and, and uh, a lot of athletes, and there's a whole organization of the space to to accommodate the the Ironman mm -hmm. and the Iron Women too, because there are many women in the proof. <laughs> and but in in daily lives, those those massive highways are just packed with cars and very high speed. So we have this also the greatest um, highway. It's actually a state highway. It's not a it's not a municipal highway. So it means it's very broad and the circulation is very high. Uh, lots of cars and it connects the center part of the island to the northern part, which is a very big stretch. And that's the best place to train uh, for the, for the proofs, like for triathlon proofs like that, because um, they don't have many, it's pretty much plain terrain and that's wow. hard to find in the island. Mm -hmm. So that's the best stretch to, to try out and, you know, just keep fit and, you know, mm -hmm. test your timing and stuff like that. Um, but that's super, super dangerous for athletes. And we see those people like, 
Mm. Next to it, the car is just try, like it's crazy. Like my brother-in-law does that, and I, I, you know, you just pray every time they go out to try that out. Um, yeah, so we don't have proper spaces for training for mm. athletes or for people that do that just for fun and you know, for professionals, for amateurs, we don't have that. And there is a big pressure also from that category to uh, create safer uh, places for cycleways, right? Mm-hmm. In a, in a city and in a country uh, where cars are the priority, not the people walking, not the people on bikes, uh, not anything else. We didn't have people on horses here still in Brazil and those guys just walk in the middle of the cars. Crazy. <laughs> some people, some very old kind of old communities that still use um, horses to walk around, um, they walk with cars. Uh, there is no other option. So either you are a car or you're not, and, and good luck for you. So we have this big problem of mobility. They're trying to, to kind of figure it out. They just, uh, we have a second bridge in the city, uh, like connecting us to mainland. It's, it looks a lot like the Golden Bridge. Uh, it's very old. It was made in the beginning of the 19th century. And it was out of service for many years. And last year they just reopened it and it was supposed to be just for, um, just for cycling and for walking around. It's like kind of um, really one space thinking about those people because there's, there's a very strong pressure on that. Like mm-hmm. we, uh, we need to find other ways of transporting in this, in this place. But now they open it to cars because the traffic of the other bridge that actually brings people in and out of the city by car it's so heavy, it's so bad that they, they open it. They did making a trial right now. They opened, I think, two weeks ago for cars, and people were so enraged. Like, no, this is the only, you know, space that we're trying to uh, actually marking that, okay, we need spaces just for walking and for cycling that's safe. Um, but now they open to cars, so everybody's kind of pissed about it with with reason right Mm -hmm. so i don't know what's actually going on with the second bridge now the oldest one it was just reopened but i hope that the population can actually do big pressure so it's closed off again at least just like a symbol to show that we need spaces that are safe for people to walk and to cycle of course so we have right now many cycleways popping um in the city uh, which are actually um, a result of years and years of <laughs> community arguing with municipality and arguing with the local um, people living there. So in the community, have a lot of clashes also like, no, we don't want cycle way because then uh, us with cars, we will need to walk, like to drive slower in that place. And we don't want that. And, we cannot turn everywhere we want because now we have a cycle in the middle of the highway and then disputing the projects. So now we want cycleway on that other side. We don't want it in the middle. So there are many things going on right now and years and years of negotiation amongst community and with the municipality and with entrepreneurs who are paying for it. So mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it's really big. But now at least one big one is um, being built in the very heavy trafficked uh, avenue, which is called... Um, Madre Benvenuta. It, it crosses now. The, it's almost done already. It, it's in the neighborhood I was born, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it's close to where I live right now. But it's in the middle of one of, uh, yeah, one of the 
uh, urban centers that uh, grew the most in the city mm-hmm. in the past year. So, and there are many um, technological and organic uh, markets and organic food and um, kind of green thought businesses there. So it kind of makes sense with the culture of the neighborhood, but there are many old people also that live there and they don't want to change their lives, you know, because young people want to cycle and, and ah. don't want to have cars. Man, <laughs> so you it's do the same struggle, to... same struggle across, uh, across, at least across like the new world, like the colonized world for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that happens. So you have all those kind of different nuances to this problem and you do have, you do need a lot of patience to articulate that. And my mom is right in the middle of it. So I kind of hear she say like telling us about the the meetings and another meeting and another meeting. And so that's probably been for that specific um, cycleway that should be, that should have been built, I think 10 years ago mm-hmm. because they, they built a massive shopping mall in there uh, in that neighborhood and they never gave the return to the community they were supposed to uh, give by law right mm-hmm. and then the community is trying to push it and it's not working but 10 years later here we are and uh <laughs> but then the some people in the community didn't went the cycle away like that and ah they yeah. say no but then the businesses on one side are going to be prejudiced because you cannot park and then okay so we'll put it in the middle no but then i cannot turn everywhere i want i have to go all the way one kilometer uh, further to to make the u-turn and then you know it must those be so things. exhausting on their foot on the pedal right <laughs> you know like that's my thing as a cyclist is like for me to go i have my power is in my legs and yours is in your foot you can tap the brake it's really not that difficult exactly. you know? <laughs> it's like probably half a minute one minute more in the daily lives you know so yeah. It's yeah, a shame okay. with our with this car centric design, and it's interesting you brought up. I I enjoy the history aspect of it. I think we certainly need to understand like the origins of things and and why uh, communities were built a certain way. And to to hear about the U.S. is you know bringing uh, the car industry to Brazil. And I know I mean I know a lot of our cars are built in Brazil. You know we we actually know that. And so in turn, it's a shame that the railroad was you know, basically deconstructed in the process. And, and honestly, the U.S. had the same issues. We, um, you know, rail used to transport everything and, and now we don't have really like human rail. Like we still have a lot of, of like freight rail. Um, but this car centric design um, is it's like, it's not working, right? And I, you mentioned, it's, it's interesting. What I'm hearing is like, with Florianopolis being the being where the Ironman is, you have these athletes who want to train. And I certainly fall into that category as I try and um, advocate from a community place to the municipalities. But there's also, in reality, a transportation issue. Like, you know, how does someone who cannot afford a car move themselves you know um you know i certainly want to train and stay healthy and i want everyone to be encouraged to do the same but at the same time if you want to pull people out of poverty they need to be able to transport themselves without being fear of being hit and killed and then i think sometimes businesses can be short-sighted and uh i think there's room for business opportunity when you have people walking and cycling and moving slower by businesses instead of getting in their car driving to a parking spot walking into one store getting back in their car and going wherever they want but um 
you guys are battling it. It sounds like exactly the same way we are. And I also question, like, why wasn't this done 10 years ago? Like, this is not something new. People have been asking for these things for, you know, decades. And yet we're in 2020 and still having to have this fight. So uh, I will have to keep an eye on Florianopolis. And when it opens, please, like, send us some articles so we can see what happens because my hope is and i've seen this in other places around the world that there's a lot of resistance to it but when it finally does open and they see the benefits like less traffic less air pollution more people uh visiting the stores on the on the cycleway that that those naysayers and those people who don't want anything to change can hopefully see the benefit of it Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we have this particularity also, like, which is very interesting that's happening because this, this, the cycleway, we know um, from, you know, many people that are studying around the world and we see the cases in Europe, it's pretty much the future of mobility, right? So we are reducing the scale of the urban tissue, right? So we have um, tinier systems of uh, economy that are bringing people closer so you don't have to go all the way from your house on the other side of the city or to another city to you know to buy food to buy everything you need to have fun to you know be in contact with culture and contact with other people so kind of uh, from this massive expansion of uh, the the urban grid we are now the the projects uh, towards sustainable cities and smart cities and everything else um, they are proposing tinier systems of uh, communal systems, right? Where you have, you can pretty much find everything around pretty much closer, close by to your house. And you can go like in a, a bike distance, right? From your house, you can go to work, you can, you, you can have your kids at school, you can study. So, um, so some people here are really proposing that, uh, especially professors from the universities and they are in the city council and they are, kind of advocating for it. Um, but, it, you know, it's the cultural thing. Um, you do have to change this mentality. But something very interesting is that the entrepreneurs, the people with power and money here, are buying that and they are really into it. So we had, a, I think, a couple of years ago, we had an entrepreneurial mission, they call it. Uh, and they all went to Denmark to study the, the cycleways there and how they do that in the city. And those guys are the ones who are now willing to pay. They created the whole project to connect this big um, stretch from uh, connecting the center to the um, northern part of the, the city, as I told you. They, yeah, the, so they have a project of going all the way, and it's, I don't know how many kilometers, it's pretty, pretty big, and they're creating a cycleway of that. Because also their businesses are the technology businesses, and they know um, that's how the people that will work for them, that's how they want to live as well, you know, because they don't want to be stuck in traffic. Mm-hmm. It, like in a place where it's like five kilometers, three kilometers, they're stuck in traffic every day. You lose a lot of time. And that, that does not add up to the experience of living and retaining those people because it's a very competitive marketing also for those, uh, market also for those uh, professionals, right? They can just go to Sao Paulo, you know. Mm-hmm. But they are being... Many people from Sao Paulo are coming here because they want to live a healthier life close to nature. So we do have to kind of give them that, you know, if you're thinking from an entrepreneurial perspective. So they, those um, guys that kind of, let's say, progressive uh, entrepreneurs mm-hmm. are um, 
um, kind of starting out that project or they, uh, they're putting themselves out there to say, okay, we're building that, we're paying for that cycle way, we have the project. So they submit it to the municipality um, organs to see if it's okay, if they need to change something. And then we also have this um, very, um, it, it is an interesting thing that they are kind of under this, um, this concept of sustainability, they are kind of dri like driving change in the city. It's so interesting because you have all this, as I told you before, all this uh, different uh, uh, actors, right? We have the public sector, we have the community, and we have the entrepreneurs. And the entrepreneurs are doing an interesting work regarding that. Of course, they have their interests. They have their, their um, also economic interests. And they are, yeah, they're creating a sphere, a whole sphere of that. But it's so nice that they are doing that, right? They are indeed uh, putting money into it. This means, because these guys are not silly, this means it's worth it. Mm -hmm. It's worth it to invest in sustainable mobility and sustainable housing and sustainable ways of doing things together, you know? And I think uh, this is a good scenario, right? When all those three actors are kind of converging towards something. And yeah, that's why also I think Floripa uh, Floripa is the short name of Florinopolis, kind okay. of a nickname. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's easier to say. Mm -hmm. um, also, we want to keep, I bet there's a lot of interest in keeping Ironman here, mm -hmm. the Ironman in Brazil, because it brings international visibility. And this is good for a market that wants to emerge as a technology market, as uh, something that can bring people from everywhere in the world to work here, because, you know, people work in English anyway or something like that. Um, so, uh, and also, I think, as you said before, um, a bicycle is a very democratic way of transportation, right? So um, you do um, at least create an option, and we're talking about having an option in a capitalistic, neoliberal <laughs> economy, uh, an option of mobility that you do not only have one way, which is pretty much using crowded bus with very poor timing, you know, um, that takes ages and ages and ages. So, yeah, of course, there's a lot to it. And, I mean, for a cycleway to actually work um, systemically, you do need that everything. Like, we do need not only inside the city, we also need to create a connection with the neighboring cities, which are pretty much the greatest workforce of the city, the rich guys in the city. <laughs> come from neighboring cities, the satellite cities. Um, so that will also be needed. We have this very um, strong in, like intake and income and uh, the flux of people coming in and out of the, the, the island is massive because many people are not in the island. They come to, um, as service, um, service people to the island. So we have lots of, of also, uh, strata to it, but I think it's important to start from somewhere. And I see that the community, the, the municipality, so the public sector and the entrepreneurs are, have already started. And I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm optimistic. I hope, I hope something really nice um, is going to happen and it can inspire other places too. To yeah. see, you know, yeah. we don't need to be all the time disagreeing. We can do things differently, but at least we're trying uh, to create a nicer place for everyone, you know. 
Yeah, definitely. We'll have to keep an eye on it with all three of the main actors going in the same direction. I would hope that we have positive outcomes. Um, let's talk about another aspect of Loripa's sustainability drive, and that's their um, uh, Lisho Cero, which is zero waste initiatives. And it seems like that is focused on well, a big part of it is sorting household trash. And we did an interview a few episodes ago with a commercial composter here um, about, about the, the capabilities of sorting trash so that organic matter is composted instead of going to the landfill and recyclables are, are happening. This, you're aiming for zero waste by 2030. Where is Floripa on that scale? And how do the residents... Um, how are the residents doing with it? Was it widely accepted? Did you, are there some people who are just like, I don't want to take the time to do this? Or, or how does Floripa stand on those lines with zero waste? Well, that's a big question because um, I'm not into, I, I don't really know the, the inside numbers now. I don't even know mm -hmm. if they have a census on that. But that is uh, a law kind of it okay. which is I don't think it's a law a decree but it's like a direction that the municipality has to follow and everybody else because this is a I think it's a law probably that applies to every single um I say that establishment like if you have a restaurant so that restaurant has to follow those laws like towards zero waste and uh, mm -hmm. until I know, 2030, right? So it is a change in the establishments, like the businesses, they have to adapt to it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and also the people have to adapt to it. So the municipality is trying to create and educate the population. The community centers are doing a very heavy job. I think it started with them, actually. Um, and now the, the public sector is trying to create... Um, uh, to create the structure for that so that can happen so um, one thing that I know the botanical gardens do now is that they are giving compost uh, like uh, individual compost so you can have it home they're giving it so they give a little the people has to go there they sign up for free and they have a, of course a limited amount of of compost right but um and I don't know if it, you call it compost, right? Yeah, we just the call thing. it compost, yeah. Yeah, oh, here as well. Compost. We say compost data. <laughs> oh, okay. But, yeah, so you have, you, you, can, you can have one of that, but if you have to go to, the, uh, you know, I think it's on Saturdays in the morning, you have to go to the, uh, to the botanical garden and you receive kind of a training on that and how to use it, why, and everything else and oh, like a compost like a compost bin like so you're having the, the exactly okay. okay yeah the compost bin exactly the thing where you do the composting okay. mm -hmm. so you can do home, <laughs> so, home composting right exactly. in a small area i imagine that if people are living in like uh like apartments or something they can't do yard composting they have to do a compost bin yeah exactly a bin so you can do it in an apartment right mm -hmm. so i mean the the public um gardens doing that the botanical gardens giving that to the population and training them on how to use the composting and that's been a massive success a massive like like lines of waiting lines you know it's uh, <laughs> fun yeah yeah and so many people are doing their own and uh, a lot of 
a lot of people are doing it and then it's like community organized they're doing it kind of in the green areas they they do need to ask the municipality to use that area because that's supposed to be a green area of preservation but um they they have been achieving that they kind of using parts of that green area of preservation to do a, a composting program for the the whole neighborhood of the people that are participating they they have a lot of already they're growing vegetables and they are growing fruits already and they give out um you know soil and you know this is really good um here where my parents live they're doing that already and it's kind of one of i think they they were not the first ones but they're in the north of the city so uh in the south of the city they started way earlier um the south of the city is pretty known by kind of a commas here alternative part of the city mm -hmm. and they are really um mobilized and they really do things together towards um kind of treating the waste and and being responsible for that they started the the revolution and my mom reminded me of that they started the revolution of i see that man of the bucket <laughs> that's literally translated the revolution of the bucket which is pretty much and um, the neighbors coming together and you know separating the good organic waste which is pretty much whatever you're not eating from your food right mm -hmm. um and then they they bring that together you know they bring that to a place to center and uh, there they start the composting process like from it, a, a larger amount of of uh, organic material and they after that everybody can benefit from whatever people are sowing there so yeah it, so really started as a, a community movement of people coming together i i i know many friends that went to um old people's asylums that's how you call that no that, uh, like, <laughs> oh, i'm sorry i'm so that's sorry okay. for that. no 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 i mean i assume you're talking about like uh, older uh, like what we would call maybe care homes care, mm -hmm. care homes exactly mm -hmm. so they kind of redoing their gardens over there and they're planting that for them so at least now the the elderly people have a place so they can take care of nature and that's really good for them you know for their health um to be in contact with with the earth so they organize it um and there, there's a lot of permaculture in it you know so they organize the whole they, they kind of redo um their garden and they of course they add a composting uh compost bin or compost pot to that mm -hmm. and i mean the, the administration of the the homes the, the caring homes will have to of course deal with that but then the the elderly people they have a space to be in contact with nature and then to uh, with you know creating or uh, growing vegetables and growing flowers again so a lot of projects like that were done voluntarily by uh, the community in the south mainly of the mm -hmm. island and that started i think probably 10 years ago i remember the first one people really would just you know those uh it was like a mob is it flash mob thing mm -hmm. is it flash yep. mob yeah flash mob yeah remember that <laughs> mm -hmm. that that kind of fever that happened they would do flash mobs like mm -hmm. but with that objective of coming together and, and redoing creating a permaculture garden or um, a composting for a community in a neighborhood. So they did a lot of that at that time. And now they're amplifying those projects and really doing it with the municipality. So the city councilors think, 
yeah, that's the word I was looking for. The city councillors, um, some some of them are already elected because of their um, sustainability discourse and what the and they were already people from the community that would they were doing those things. So now they are amplifying that. And one of those people were um, or many I, I only know one city councillor. He was the one pushing the zero waste um, law. Mm-hmm. forward and um it was now it passed so yeah so the zero waste law is a pretty much a, a horizon of expectation <laughs> to mm-hmm. the city to fulfill in now in 10 years but it's i don't know when it passed but it, it's been in in discussion for a while so it's pretty much it has to do with um the dealing of the the waste product uh, produced by the whole population of Florinopolis and the businesses, right? So it's not only uh, recycling, they call, the, I don't know how you say that, but it's not only recyclable, but it call, we call the, the dry waste, which is pretty much things that can be recycled, right? So you have paper, mm-hmm. plastic, glass, mm-hmm. and they're doing it in a very ordinate way now. They have, um, now they have collected, collected, collecting. Collection. Pl- Collection points, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Collection points of glass and glass only around the city, mm-hmm. as usually it would go like the recyclable waste would just go. We don't do it. It is in Germany, for example, where you already separate. You have different bins for mm-hmm. plastic and paper and glass, and we would just do everything that is recyclable. The municipality will uh, collect in a house or in your condominium. Or Condo, whatever you leave, um, and then uh, you have the organic, which is pretty much the waste. So it's not only organic, good food; it's everything that would not be recycled. So it's pretty much put together. So you only have those two categories of glass okay. uh, of uh, waste. Oh, mm-hmm. And now the this idea of the zero waste, it's actually organizing and separating better those um, those that waste. There is a a federal law for a whole Brazil, which is called, uh, but that's only for solid residuals. Um, yeah, but they have, there is this law that uh, determines that the whole, you know, the whole extension of Brazilian territory has to recycle um, solid residuals, which is, Florinopolis uh, has been kind of a champion in, in recycling those residuals for a while now already. Mm-hmm. But now they want uh, in in the city the zero waste um, campaign and also you know this horizon of what, what we where we want to get in ten years is that also the municipality would um, would how do you say that collect uh, in everyone's houses and everyone's business only uh, the good um, organic waste that can be composted mm-hmm. or can go to composting right so. That is something amazing. If it does happen, it will be amazing. Um, of course, many people don't know that. Many people don't understand. Many, still, some people don't even recycle the, the dry waste, as we call it, mm-hmm. the, everything else that, we can, that is not organic, right? Um, so we do, usually people just go like, okay, but um, where, do I, like, where do I separate it? Um, it smells bad or... No, but I, I use plastic bags for everything that is not recyclable. Um, so 
how can I, where can I store it? So people that had, hasn't, they haven't really tried it, it, they do have to change their habits. And I think that's the trickiest part. But so many people are doing that, that I think, you know, together we can uh, change anyone, everyone's habits. Um, that's always the hardest part. And we don't have yet the law that prohibits uh, plastic bags in this place. We had the one, I think that prohibits the, the plastic straws, mm -hmm. but not the, the bags. And that's a project I was uh, conducing with a um, couple of partners that we, tr we will try and make a campaign, at least for the, for the supermarkets that have a very elite, um, uh, an elite public. So they have elite clients, people with a lot of money that have been to other places. They see how this can be different. Um, they will, we want them to start a campaign uh, that you have to pay for your plastic bag yeah. <laughs> if you want to use one. Mm -hmm. Or they, if they want to change for a com uh, compostable, composable, a different material that is not plastic mm -hmm. uh, for the bags. But usually they are very expensive, so you wouldn't just give them away like they give away plastic bags. Right. Um, but we're trying to articulate that. Um, this is very, for me, this is crazy that it's not yet happened, but then you have all the the habits and the habits, uh, the old habits are sometimes tricky to to change. They are not very popular. So, you yeah, know. We say, we say old habits die hard in English. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And they're not very, I mean, we, we're trying to tackle the, like supermarkets and then they they are afraid that their clients are not going to like it you know so we kind of have we want to see if if we can talk to i don't know four or five um like um businesses so they even the the ones that compete with one another are in the same boat you know so they are not kind of falling behind uh the competition so yeah we're still articulate articulating that we 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 really want if you have any ideas that you know worked over that let us know because we are in the middle of just trying to negotiate that with well with, i would i would hope you some of the issues that we have here um is we have lobbying groups that are that represent the petroleum industry like the american chemistry council which sounds like a legitimate like oh it's a council full of chemists but it's actually you know it's completely funded by exxon and mobile and all these big oh. oil companies and they're trying to get laws on the books in this in the states because we have you know like the federal government we have the state government and then we have the municipalities and the municipalities are the ones that are doing the plastic bag bans but the american chemistry council is trying to get in with the state governments to like basically they they position it as like freedom of choice you're taking away a person's freedom to choose a plastic bag if your wow. municipality bans them so that it would overrule the municipality and so they always wiggle and ugh, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, nothing is perfect. That's for sure. But it sounds like in terms of the composting right now in Floripa, that it's on the, that the, like the home, the resident has to either compost it themselves or they take it to uh, like a garden center, like a botanical gardens. Uh, and the municipality is, is trying to come up with a larger, like what we call commercial composting, which is something I think would be fantastic where you have your 
your compostable plastic trash bag full of compostable items and someone picks it up and takes it off somewhere. So you guys don't have that set up, but you're working towards it. Do I understand that correctly? Exactly. We do have the some private ones that do mm-hmm. that. So, you know, they, they collect it in your home and you pay them a fee. They do that every month. Mm-hmm. Um, or you just do that like in my mom's neighborhood now. They just take it there to the... Um, to the place where the community is doing their own composting. So mm-hmm. it's kind of an independent thing as well. But yeah, the project that uh, is trying to pass right now is that, um, so as we have the collection of waste that is uh, recyclable waste and just the waste that goes to the dump places, which is horrible, they will have the uh, municipal collect- like collection of organic waste doesn't I don't think it I don't know exactly how it's going to work but I don't I'm not sure if people need to buy these different bags I think they maybe you know just leave it in like uh, I don't know containers and mm-hmm. then they can just throw it in a larger container in, in a in a truck that the truck mm-hmm. is going to pick it up you know mm-hmm. um kind of how they do it right now like the the recyclable ones, the recyclable items, usually they just go in and you don't, you don't use a bag to put recyclable things right. in it necessarily sometimes. But I mean, most of the times, at least here in our house, we use the, you know, just uh, carton boxes mm-hmm. um, we, because every time I buy something, especially now there's everything on e-commerce during a pandemic. I always ask, don't, please don't put anything in, in the plastic bags. We don't want it. Just give me whatever carton bag you have there paper bags and mm-hmm. usually they they abide it because they have so many from the industry so many carton bags uh, uh carton boxes sorry yeah um so well, that's it yeah that's interesting i don't think we have that option <laughs> if you order something from amazon it comes however like we have to seek maybe a company that has a sustainable mission that would package differently. But otherwise we're still all single use, crazy plastic and styrofoam. And it's just, yeah. ugh. what do they do with things that aren't recyclable, recyclable or compostable? There has to, at least for us, we still have that third thing that has to go to the landfill. For example, uh, well, first I've done a whole thing, a uh, interview about plastic recycling and whether it works or not. But, um, our plastic recycling at my house only recycles two types of plastic, number one and number five. And so anything outside of that has to go to the landfill. Uh, how does Floripa uh, process that? Do you have the same issues or no? <laughs> we, uh, here it's different. Like I'm not even versed on types of plastic because we are, we mm-hmm. still do other things, but we have people that separate that. Okay. Cause we have, uh, you know, inequality raging in brazil we have people that deal and separate our garbage and those guys are the ones really they're really important people and they are um these are the ones that are calling to sustainable measures systemically they they do especially now with social media they appear they say look this is how we separate the trash um the recyclable trash right mm-hmm. um this cannot be you know they they teach a population those guys and we have um a municipal um organ for for that which is called concap it's like half municipal half private yeah it's a kind of a mixture um now it was not always like that and but they're doing very nice campaigns of educating people on how to 
separate the trash and then and what can be com uh, like recyclable what cannot be and also that is why um, they are separating the collection points of um, uh, glass because mm -hmm. many times the glass would just go in in there and you know can, that's dangerous can be um, can hurt the the workers there also if it breaks in the middle you know during transportation and glass is really good like it's a very good thing for um mm -hmm. for reuse like reusing that so yeah they're doing it separately now so they're trying to create other processes right um but it's pretty much human made still um and everything else that doesn't go either to recycling or composting mm -hmm. which right now is still a very individual thing um uh, it goes to i think it's landfill right that horrible places piles of god yeah the mm -hmm. dump like piles yeah, of garbage. we don't have those in in our city uh mm -hmm. so we pay to a neighboring city to receive our garbage and it's like i don't know how many tons per day we produce um so this is also one of the arguments towards this zero waste thing because it's going we're going to save a lot of uh public money without sending all those uh, all those tons of garbage because we pay for tons right mm -hmm. or to, to another <laughs> just sending it to another city to you know to deal with it uh, which is pretty much sleeping there there's no dealing with it um, and it's really bad for the environment we all know how toxic that could be to the waters and you know animals and yeah it's just a shouldn't be like that you know it's just horrible and there's so many good things that go in there as waste that can actually be recycled or, or just i don't know probably 60 percent of that at least can can be composed mm -hmm. right? in the united right. states 40 percent of our landfill waste is compostable and so it's uh yeah and it just releases methane which is 30 exactly. times more more powerful a greenhouse gas than co2 so um for me, like, I know waste management doesn't sound sexy or exciting, but like the gains that can be made from like properly organizing that and having alternatives to the landfill or even recycling and getting plastic out of the stream because glass recycling, aluminum recycling, paper recycling, that's something that is sustainable long term, but plastic can only be recycled once, maybe twice. And that's only if it's handled properly. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's really not really the best material we should be using <laughs> yeah and it's of course it's not it comes from no non-renewable um, sources so it doesn't make any sense and i don't think we have um that thing of like collecting the biogas and burning it right so it becomes something else other than methane uh methane i don't know <laughs> I can't even yeah say that. methane yeah yeah yeah, so the collect in the collection as well. I had someone mention like, well, there's some landfills where they collect the the methane and then they burn it for, to you know heat houses or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're still burning fossil fuels. Like it doesn't exactly. solve the problem. It's either the methane is going into the atmosphere or we capture it and then we burn it. So, you know, you're not solving the problem. <laughs> you just. Exactly redirecting exactly. it and also i think composting in reality the cost of it is so much lower than trying to capture methane off the top of a landfill site you know like i don't even know how many millions or billions of dollars it takes to create machinery that siphons off methane compared to just like separating an apple and putting it in a compost bin you know? exactly and i mean it's so it's such a more complex 
a process as well, like the composting. And it's just so natural because that's what nature does. So kind of recreating a natural process at home. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's like minimum impact because you have all tiny little fellas working for us in there and, and helping us out, you know, kind of a, a gang gang situation. So uh, yeah, we're feeding, feeding a little bugsies and, and, you know, the friends that hit that are essential for our survival in the planet. And then, yeah, we, we, they are helping us out and we are helping them out. So yeah, it's really, and I, I have friends that do, they have the composting with worms. Yeah, worm composting. Um, I do that as well. We do yard composting, a big pile, but I do my own worm composting, which is really fun. I love my yeah. worms. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like a, it's a little bit more, it's a faster process, right? Because they yeah. eat and they help out and they oxygen the soil itself, themselves. So yeah, so I have friends that are doing that in their apartments and they say how, how, how they have changed because of, the, because of it. Because they say, well, every time I go to the supermarket and I, I start buying things, I think of what my worms would like to eat. And I was like, what, man? I didn't think about that. He's like, yeah, because if I buy a banana, I know they like the banana. So, yeah, I'll go for the banana. I'm not going for, a, you know, something that's more acidic. They, they wouldn't like that much. He said, mm -hmm. it so, said it was so funny for him to, you know, catch himself thinking about, okay, what do my worms would like to eat? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, says, this is beautiful. Like, man, it this is, is really um reconnecting to something that is actually has always been there that we're part of something bigger that we're not living alone and that our species is not the only one that matters in the you know in, in this life and yeah but yeah it was amazing I, to hear that yeah composting <laughs> i mean there must be the church of composting because everyone i know who has started <laughs> composting has these stories like the if you a lot of our composting is that pile in the in our backyard because we have a yard and so it starts with once you're used to moving your organic waste into a compost pile if you're out and about and you have a banana peel it's like painful to throw it into a trash can like you just want to keep it and move it to your compost so you start there i also think about what do the worms want to eat but we also have chickens and they're part of our composting cycle because they actually jump on the compost pile and like dig down it so my husband's like make sure you buy a cabbage for the chickens i'm like these chickens are <laughs> spoiled but the chickens give us <laughs> eggs and they're super fun to watch and you're right it's that it is a really amazing uh you know it's a shame that people have like extruded ourselves from nature it's been something that's happened over centuries that we've kind of retracted when in reality we do we are part of nature we need to re-engage with it and find these cycles and there's just it's something wholesome and everyone i know who does that comes out the other side feeling different and feeling better and being excited about it so yeah i think i do think it's a necessary path for us to to trod because yeah there is no other way of keeping doing what we're doing and dumping dumping everything that we are not using anymore and you know even if we're doing it in someone else's city or somewhere else um it's still polluting our waters it's still polluting you know the the same beach that you know that that current is coming to our beaches anyway you know it's, it's all so interconnected and it's so crazy to understand how how separated we've been um from the cycle of life um and i think this is the greatest problem i think probably the separation understanding we are not connected to one another into nature and to all the beings that share this life with us in the planet that created this big divide of like we use nature for our comfort point that's it you know period mm -hmm. um and i don't think 
this is a felt like this is a crazy illusion like as if we can't be here without breathing the oxygen that the forest and the algae and the ocean created you know just mm-hmm. yeah we kind of lost the understanding of life i guess in that sense yeah. interconnectedness and somehow the tiny little movements which is not that tiny anymore um, of composting and home composting and coming together as a community to create alternatives for you know managing our waste and being accountable you know for our waste most mm-hmm. most of all i think um is starting to create this reconnection okay i'm thinking about the worms and the chickens and what they want to eat yeah it's not only about ourselves anymore you know no well i think this is a great place to wrap it up you've introduced us to florinopolis floripa i really hope i can go there and be uh do an iron man there for sure um i'll be cheering man definitely yeah i'll need it <laughs> 12 hours later <laughs> um and uh and we'll keep an eye on it and as things develop please do send us like articles or photos and and when the cycle way opens let's like celebrate that yes. and uh it oh can be a, you know you like you've mentioned what a unique culture the city has and also geographically it's unique in its island status so it is one to watch and i would love um i'm sure the residents of what do you call people from floripa oh that's a tricky one we call it manazinho da ilha Okay, and it's, <laughs> it is yeah, Ilha is island and yep. Manazio is uh, a nickname for Portuguese people. Okay. So the accent the 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 accent of the island is pretty close to Portuguese from Portugal. Many people from Brazil don't even understand it. Uh-huh. And we, that's because they had a, a they the island was colonized by people from the Azores island yeah so the Azores was um, colonized by Portuguese people and Mm -hmm. uh, these guys came to populate Brazil uh, which was said to be a demographic um, you know whole as we say uh, as a zero uh, demographic which is bullshit sorry part of my French but we had a lot of like we have a really large indigenous population in Brazil but they had this colonist, like colonizing discourse that there were no one in here they needed. The crown needed to send people to pretty much to kill the inhabitants mm-hmm. here and um, to maintain the territory. So uh, that's where the name comes from. Well, <laughs> the Manazios. The Manazios. We'll, we'll keep an eye. And like I said, I think the city and the residents would it sounds like they want to be like a, a beacon as you guys move down this journey, whether you're forced down it or whether it's going willingly with the, with the community and the business, the tech industry, and also your, um, your municipalities like moving this forward. And hopefully it can be a learning experience that we can pick up similar programs and, and have it disseminate across the world and just have a better place. <laughs> oh yeah, man. I really hope this actually starts sparking everywhere else. And we do it together, you know, and inspire it like simultaneously one another. Uh, we are kind of running, running against the clock here. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, all of this is pretty urgent. So I really hope this movement keeps on going and, you know, it's getting stronger and that people also get information about it, you know, because changing mm-hmm. habits um, with this, um, you know, with this in mind that we're doing something for everyone and for the future generations as well. Um, it's more than necessary. It's not only a matter of, ah, do I want it? It's something that we need to do. And of course, the people that have the choice, right? So I think if we have the choice, 
it's our duty to do so. Um, yes. So yeah, I hope this actually yeah happens to and becomes a reality to more and more people. Definitely. Well, thank you. <laughs> Muito obrigada, and uh, and have a wonderful rest of the day. I appreciate Felicia. Uh, we will keep an eye on Floripa for you. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for the invitation and for the work that you're doing, spreading this uh, valuable, most necessary information. Okay. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Ciao. <laughs> Ciao. How good was that? Please support Eco Reviews by subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Music, or YouTube. Leave us a review. That really helps more people find this content. Follow us on social media to stay up to date with environmental news and our podcast guests, and donate via Patreon. We're going to try a little cross-promotion of podcasts for this episode, so check this one out for cool stories about wildlife. Hello friends! Did you know that a sea otter mother is one of the most loving mothers out there? Or that a bird's lungs don't actually expand when they breathe? Or maybe that an octopus is among the most intelligent of the invertebrates? Well you do now, and you can learn more by listening to Wildlife Weirdos, a podcast where I find out what I can about an animal and I tell you all about it, released every first and third Tuesday. You can find us at wildlifeweirdos.wix.com podcast or on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr as Wildlife Weirdos. Talk to you soon!